Today we're coming to, to celebrate Resurrection Sunday, the rising of Jesus from the grave. Amen. And so that's what the message is all about today. We're focusing on the resurrection. And um, the title of my message today is God, Give Me a Sign. God, Give Me a Sign. Uh, so let's read this together, shall we, from Luke's Gospel. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they'd prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home, marveling at what had happened. Thanks be to God for his word. And Lord, we pray that as we hear now in our worship service, we hear now your word We pray that we might have the same reaction as Peter, that we might marvel at what has happened at the resurrection of Christ. And so, Lord, I pray as we begin this study, Lord, that you would be powerfully present in this moment, that you would draw our hearts to focus in on you. And, Lord, we pray that even now we might just want to drop anything that we've come into the room with that might be preoccupying our minds uh, so that we can focus in on the mighty, mighty testimony of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so, yeah, we pray that. And actually, I just want to, I want to pray also, um, I do sense there are some of us coming in here today with, with, with worries, uh, financial worries, and um, I think there's a lot of people struggling with this, and we just want to pray right now for peace over finances, uh, especially, Lord, I feel like there's a, a family here that's thinking and looking towards a bill they need to pay at the end of the month and thinking, how am I going to do this? And so, Lord, we just pray right now, Father, for a supernatural provision and an ability to pay all the bills that we need to pay this month. And Lord, that we might be able to just sit at the foot of the cross today and not be preoccupied with worries, but know, Lord, that you've gone ahead of us and that you have met every need. Lord, you care uh, in your providence about the sparrow, Lord. So how much more do you care about us and all of our needs? So we lay these at your feet right now in Jesus' name. Amen. So my message today is called, God, give me a sign. How many of you have said that before? (laughs) Be honest with me. (laughs) A lot of people have said that before. God, give me a sign. Now, I'm going to tell some um, personal stories today to help illustrate why I've called the message this. Uh, What is the purpose of me calling the the, the message, God, give me a sign? Uh, I think my personal story ties into this. Now, I I remember as a young man... uh, I'm not so young now, but as a young man, before I had gray hair, I remember on occasion being filled with doubt. 
I don't know if any of you have ever felt like this about your faith, but I remember being filled with doubt on occasion about whether the Bible was really true. And I'm going to be really honest with you. You know, these doubts extended to all parts of the Bible. You know, I had big questions about whether Jesus really did do all that the Bible claimed that he did. Um, I, I had doubts about whether his death on the cross, I had doubts about how that could actually pay for my sins here in the 21st century. You know, I was like, well, how does that work? I'm not sure on the economy of that. I actually had doubts, uh, I must confess, even over the very existence of God. I doubted when I looked around at the world and when I went into my secondary school and I went into the halls of my university and I heard the teachers teach and try to rationalize all that the Bible put forward as being miraculous, I thought, well, there's no room for God, is there? And I began to doubt God's very existence. And I remember that in moments of desperation as a young man, I would I remember lying on my bed and praying, God, you know, if you're real, would you just please give me a sign? <laughs> just give me a sign. Move, move the curtains as I'm lying in bed or um, make me feel something extraordinary right now. If you could just prove yourself to me right now, just give me a sign. I'll believe in you. I'll give you my life. I'll run after you. I'll drop whatever sin it is that I'm in. Just give me a sign. Just give me a sign, God. And I know that's not just me. I know that many of you too have experienced these moments. Maybe some of you are even walking through them, through them now. And you know what? This is part of many of our journeys. And I want to talk a little bit to that today. So you know, actually, there's a story. There's a story in this Gospel of Luke in chapter 16 that I think is really interesting. And it kind of speaks to my experience of seeking a sign from God. Because there's another man in the Bible that did, did the same thing. It's, it's found in Luke chapter 16, verse 19 to 31. I'm, I'm going to read it out. You don't need to turn there. It says this. Jesus is telling a story. He says, there's a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen. And he lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus. He was covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. It's gross. Wow. Um, the time came when the beggar died and angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father, Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, then, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they'll repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Let me say this to you today. 
the sign that I was seeking those years ago, I'd already had one. I'd already been given a sign from God. I just didn't want that sign. I wanted a new one. I'd been given a sign in the resurrection of Christ. But I didn't want that sign. I didn't see that sign as being good enough for me. But, but Abraham says, listen, if you don't want to receive the resurrection as a sign from God that he's there, that he loves you, that he's real, then no sign will be good enough for you. You have received a sign from God. And it's what we're celebrating today in the resurrection of Christ. You see, this rich man, he had the same attitude that Graham Phillips had. Ignoring the signs, the warnings, the miracles and prophecies that God had already given and asking for a fresh one just for him. Now let me say also, God is so good. He's so good that he will actually even give you signs that touch your life and speak to you in the moment. He's so, so, so gracious and good like that. But let me tell you, he doesn't have to. He doesn't have to. He's already risen his own son from the grave. Not in a corner, but in the middle of human history where everybody could witness it. So you see what I'm saying? God did give me many signs of his existence, but he didn't have to. He'd already done it. I want to say to you that God's not shy. God isn't hiding. Aside from all of the myriad proofs of his, his existence... His goodness and His grace. All these signs are all around us. He's clearly revealed Himself to the whole world. That's what Romans 1 says. And He's done it especially through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But brothers and sisters, if we won't be satisfied with that sign, guess what? We won't be satisfied with any sign. We won't be satisfied with any sign. Now, as a Christian, many years later... It's like I can't escape from signs of God's closeness, his nearness, his existence, his power, his grace, his love. Everywhere I look, all you need to do is walk outside and you hear the birds singing, leaves on the trees. You see somebody being kind to somebody else. Why should that be? Because God is good. Because Christ is on the throne. There's no other reason for it. There's no such thing as goodness if we're all sacks of protoplasm evolved from primordial soup. There's no such thing as evil if we're all sacks of protoplasm evolved from the primordial soup. There's no up, there's no down, there's no is, there's no ought, there's nothing. There's just stuff. Because God exists, there is an oughtness to life. There is a way that we ought to behave. And you know why that is? Because there is a God. There is such a thing as objective right. There is such a thing as objective wrong. Why? Because there is a holy law-giving God who presides and is sovereign over this cosmos. Amen? And that's good news. So let's read, shall we, from uh, Matthew chapter 12. Again, I think this speaks to the situation in hand here. God, give me a sign. This story says in verse 38, Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees, these are very learned men, they answered him saying, Teacher, we wish a sign, we wish to see a sign from you, sorry. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. 
For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Again, I say to you, if you're looking and asking God for a sign today, I want to say to you, look no further than the empty tomb. Look no further than the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth from the dead. Let's just take a moment. I want to give you seven seven points of significance about the resurrection today, okay? There are seven points of significance that I want for us as a church to remember, okay? I'm going to read them through quickly, and then I'm going to dive into them more. Because this, I'm telling you, will strengthen your faith. It will strengthen your faith to understand what happened at the resurrection, so many Christians, just we, we live through life and we sort of have a very infantile understanding of, of what happened at the resurrection. So let's sharpen the focus, shall we? So he, here's the seven things. Number one, number one, the resurrection is a well-documented historical event. It's a well-documented historical event. It's not a fable. It's not make-believe. It's not some kind of metaphorical story to try and help you live a better life. It actually happened. It's a fact of history. That's number one. It's a well-documented historical event. Number two, it is God's vindication of Jesus as the Messiah. It's God's vindication of the man, Jesus of Nazareth, as the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. Number three, the resurrection is the authentication of the Scriptures. The resurrection puts a big seal of approval on every word and sentence in the Holy Scriptures. Number four, the resurrection is victory over sin. Number five, it is victory over death. Number six, it is victory over the powers of darkness. And number seven, it is a reason for hope in this world. It is a reason for hope. In fact, I'd go so far as to say it is the ultimate reason for hope in this world. Not just a, but the reason for hope. So let's look at this. I'm going to establish each one of these points before we finish today. Number one, it's a historical event. Now growing up, I grew up much like you. I'm a son of Wolverhampton. I grew up here. I went to secondary school here. And I grew up picking up the kind of prevailing attitude of culture. And I understood as a young man that there was a neat divide between the world of facts and reality and the world of religion. You understand what I'm saying? There's a neat divide between what's real, what's factual, what can be proven, and then the world of mystery and religion. In studies like maths and science and technology and geography, we dealt with what was real. We dealt with facts. But when we came to religion, it's essentially, we, we saw it as a collection of fables and traditions that had been handed down from distant, darker times. And these fables had probably helped people in the Bronze Age to deal with their ignorance about facts that we now, in the 20th century, fully understood. You know what I'm saying? That was how I saw the world. And so like my fellow students, I treated religious claims, even the claims of the Bible, with a heavy dose of skepticism. I I treated them with a heavy dose of skepticism, second-guessing them. And interestingly, the same dosage of skepticism wasn't meted out to the study of history. You ever notice that? 
People don't want to believe the claims of the Bible about Jesus. Oh, he never even existed. But they'll believe the claims about Julius Caesar. Did you know that there's far more historical evidence for the life of Jesus Christ than there is for many of the emperors of the Roman Empire? In fact, the book of Luke is treated as a historical source for much that went on in the Roman Empire. It's an incredible book. Also, the book of Acts, written also by Luke, a great book by Colin Hemer, written on how valuable those two works are to our understanding of ancient history. And so, interestingly, we'd sit in a history class and we would take everything as writ, that everything we were hearing was fact, but sit down in our RE class and listen about the Acts of the Apostles, and all of a sudden it's just fables. Well, actually, no. Um, it's unfair for us to give more skepticism to the New Testament documents than we do to historical documents, and I'll prove why in a moment. So, when we're looking at history, for example, what we're dealing with, especially in ancient history, are historical texts. Right? These are works written in perhaps Greek or Latin from hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago. That's what we're dealing with. And we're not dealing with the originals that were written by uh, the hand of uh, the individual who penned it. We're dealing with copies or copies of copies or copies of copies of copies of that original text. Uh, so, for example, the, the biography of Alexander the Great, it was actually written 800 years after he lived. Um, and we only have copies of copies of that original biography. And we don't have, I think we've got about 700 copies of those manuscripts. But what we learn about Alexander the Great in history school, we take as given. But when we come to the New Testament, we have tens of thousands of copies. And these copies come from within 50 years of the events that they describe, which when we think about ancient history is a really, really short gap of time. There's nothing like the New Testament in terms of the amount of copies that we've got to work from. So I think the, the problem is for many of us is that we've never been really taught. And even in church, right? We've probably sat in church for 20, 30 years, but we've never actually been taught what the New Testament is, right? We, we've been taught that yet yeah, it's the Word of God. Many of you will have understood that. Perhaps you haven't understood that the New Testament is a collection of first century Greek documents. It's a collection of documents written in the first century that have been handed down to us. And yes, it's in the inspired word of God. But equally, these are historical documents that you're carrying around with you. And so some of these books that we've got in the New Testament, they're actually eyewitness accounts of the life of a man called Jesus of Nazareth. So you're carrying around with you evidence pointing to this one man, Jesus. And I don't think we always think of the Bible like that, do we? But it is a source text for ancient history. And we can, like I said, we can trace copies of all these documents all the way back to the beginning of the second century. The earliest copy of any fragment of the Bible we have dates back to the early second century, and it's a fragment of the Gospel of John. But we've got thousands of these. In fact, there's 25,000 manuscripts of the New Testament that we have. And because we've got so many copies of these books dating back so far, it means that we can actually check to see if these books have been changed by crafty hands over the years. 
So often an argument that's presented by Muslims or atheists is, oh, the version you've got of your Bible today is nothing like what was originally written. Well, what they've done is never studied apologetics. They've never heard somebody properly answer this question because we can go right back to the start of the second century and we can read what the book said then, okay? So we can check that they haven't been changed over the years. So when people next say to you, it was all changed at the Council of Nicaea in 323, you can say, no, it wasn't, because we've got manuscripts that predate that. So we can check that these scriptures have not been changed. In fact, there are alterations, there are slight differences in the text, but you know what they are? 99.9% of these differences between the manuscripts are slips of the pen, changes of spelling. You ever tried to copy something word for word? I know I have, and uh, it's not easy. So sometimes there are changes in spelling, slight changes in grammar. So that's what we're thinking about, really, when we're thinking about differences in these thousands of manuscripts of the New Testament. Most of it is grammatical, slips of the pen. It's not massive changes of doctrine. And so it's important to remember that when we think about how our Bible came to us, why we have it today, you know, how it got to us. I think that's a really interesting study. So we can see that what we've got in our hands today is actually an accurate representation of what was originally written all those thousands of years ago. We can check that out. And in fact, in your Bible even, you'll have footnotes, won't you? So if you do come across a little asterisk looking at the end of Mark's gospel, for example, or in John chapter 8, the story of the woman caught in adultery, you'll get a little asterisk, you look down at the bottom of the page, and you'll find that, oh, okay, that story wasn't included in some of the earliest manuscripts. So the Bible's even honest about any changes or disputed texts that we do have. Now, I'm going to give you, because I'm starting to gab on a bit, but I'm going to give you four facts about the resurrection. Four facts that are agreed upon by scholars, even atheists, okay? Four facts that are agreed upon about the resurrection by scholars in relevant fields and even by people who don't even believe that Jesus Christ is who he says he is. Here's the first fact. Jesus' burial in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. That's an established historical fact that Jesus of Nazareth was crucified and buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Why is that important? It's important because Joseph was an important guy. He was on the council, okay? So therefore, he was known by the Jews. And the location of his tomb was known by the Jews and by the early followers of Jesus, okay? That's an important fact that we'll come back to. The second fact that's agreed upon is this, that the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea was found empty on the first day of the week, on the Sunday, okay? Now, the claims of Jesus' resurrection, I want you to think about this, they could have been easily proven false. All somebody had to do was produce a body. All somebody had to do was go, well, Hitler, Jesus hasn't risen from the dead, here's his body. But nobody could. Nobody could. Nobody has to this day, okay? And we also know that the Jewish leaders spread a rumor, didn't they? They said, the disciples have stolen the body. What's that pointing to? That the tomb was empty. There was no body. That's the second fact. The third fact that's agreed on by scholars is that Jesus appeared on multiple occasions after his death. Can you believe that? Scholars agree on this. Jesus appeared on multiple occasions after his death to his followers and even to 500 people at once. 
I'm going to show you something cool now in your Bible that maybe you didn't know was there. I know that two people in here have studied the same apologetics course as me, so they'll know. But 1 Corinthians 15 contains an ancient Christian creed. Do you know what a creed is? It's what we read out earlier. It contains an ancient church creed that dates back to within five years of the resurrection. It's in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 to 7, and it says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, then to the Twelve, that he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Uh, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And of course, then it goes on to say that he appeared to, to Paul. Scholars believe that this little passage, as I say, is an ancient creed that was recited every time the saints met together in the early church. And so what's it telling us? It, it's telling us that Jesus rose again. That was one of the core beliefs of the early church. He didn't raise spiritually. Some nonsense gets taught in churches these days. Oh, Jesus' resurrection, it was all just spiritual. It was, was, they never believed it was real, like it was physical. It was just metaphoric. Nonsense. That's not what the early church believed at all. Jesus rose bodily, not spiritually, physically, not metaphorically. He showed up to his followers, but also to skeptics. He showed up to his, brother, his half-brother, James. We, we know from the New Testament, James didn't believe he was the Messiah, until his brother showed up risen from the dead. Now, you've got to think about this. If you've got brothers, how much would it take to prove to you that your brother was the Messiah? Probably have to rise from the dead, wouldn't he? Do you know what I mean? So he, he rises and he shows himself, not just to followers, but to skeptics, to Paul, who was on his way to arrest Christians in Damascus. Jesus shows up to him, uh, physically resurrected from the dead. Also, it says that he showed up to 500 brothers at once. Now, there would have been women there too. Jesus showed up bodily risen from the dead to a huge crowd. Think of that. That's amazing. And it says, Paul says, listen, some of them are still alive. Some of them are still alive. Why does he say that? Why would that be important? Because he's saying, listen, check it out if you don't believe me. There are some of them still alive. Go speak to them. They'll tell you. See, the early Christian church believed in a real radical, physical, bodily resurrection. Not some weird metaphorical spiritual thing okay I want to read your quote by an atheist scholar right now you, you won't hear atheist scholars quoted very often in church but you're about to this is a guy called Gerd Ludeman uh, he's a, a New Testament scholar he's not a Christian and he says this it may be taken as historically certain that Peter and the disciples had experiences after Jesus's death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ isn't that incredible the final fact I want to share with you that's agreed upon is this. The dramatic and rapid transformation in the apostles. You remember that immediately after Jesus died, his followers went into hiding, didn't they? That They'd hid. They were devastated. They felt shamed. They were scared for their lives. But immediately after witnessing the resurrected Jesus, there's a real radical change. They become bold. They begin to preach out in public about the resurrected Christ. And it lands them in trouble. Some of them get thrown in jail. Some of them even get led to brutal executions. Um, so I want to say this. You don't do that for a lie. Think of that logically. If they stole the body of Jesus from the tomb, the, bat the battered, bruised, dead body, the corpse of their Messiah, uh, they dragged it off somewhere, 
Do you, do you really think they'd go about preaching his resurrection and be willing to get crucified upside down for that? I, I don't think so. The, these men don't come across as insane, right? So I'm going to leave it there. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is a historical event. Secondly, the resurrection of Christ is the vindication of Jesus as a Messiah. When Jesus was dying on the cross, you remember we're thinking on Good Friday about this. They're mocking him. They're surrounding him, the Jewish leaders, and they're saying, come down. Come down from the cross. If you really are the Messiah, then it should be easy for you. Come down off the cross. They're mocking him. But their mockeries turned to anguish at the resurrection, like Sam said on Friday. We see this in Acts chapter 2 as Peter stands up to preach. He says this to them, This Jesus God raised up, and all that we are all wit- sorry, and of that we're all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus who you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Their mockery turned to anguish when, Lord, sorry, when God vindicated Christ at the resurrection. The next point is this. The resurrection is the authentication of the Bible. It's the authentication of the Bible. It rubber stamps it as being true. As we've read in 1 Corinthians 15, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. All this happened in accordance with the Scriptures. I've said before, the cross wasn't an accident. Jesus didn't walk into a trap. This was preordained. This was predestined. The cross was predestined before the foundation of the earth and Christ's resurrection was a vindication it was an authentication of the truth of the scriptures it is evidence more evidence if we needed it that God's word is true next up the cross sorry the resurrection is victory over sin the resurrection is victory over sin let me show you how Romans 4, verse 25, one of the most important verses in all of your Bible. You better highlight it. It says this, He was delivered over to death for our sins. If anybody wants to preach to you about the gospel, they don't talk about sin, leave that church. That's not a biblical church. He was delivered over to death for your sins and was raised to life for our what? Justification. Justification. You needed to be justified with God. We talked about this the last time I preached when we brought the cross into focus. We're not born into this world at peace with God. Nobody's born hereditary as a Christian. It's not something you're born into. In fact, the Bible says quite the opposite. You're born at enmity with God. You're born at war with God. You're a rebel in your heart before you're born again. Sobering stuff. I wouldn't believe it unless I believed the Bible. I believe I was quite a nice person, to be honest. Because we think of ourselves comparatively, don't we? Well, I'm not like that sinner over there. We're looking across the aisles now. Oh, I'm not like them. 
Not as bad as, oh, I know what they did last week. I'm not like that. But listen, you're not like Jesus. That's the problem. Nobody's born a Christian. Nobody becomes a Christian through trying to be a good person. That's what we preach on the streets. The gospel isn't, please try harder. The gospel isn't, be a good person. The gospel is, you're a bad person. That's why you need Jesus. God loved you so much, even in all of your sin, that he sent Christ for you before the foundation of the world. Isn't that amazing? Some people say, oh, I believe that God chose me because he saw my faith. No, 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 no. Nah. God saw your sin. God saw your helplessness, and he still sent Jesus for you. That's why it's of grace and not of works. So Jesus' resurrection is complete victory over sin for all who believe. For all who believe. That's the caveat. We don't receive these things unless we believe. Now here's the deal. It's victory over sin because it's deliverance from the guilt of sin. Resurrection delivers us for all of us who believe from the guilt of sin. Secondly, it delivers us from the punishment owed to our sin. Because it's not just that we're guilty. It's that we're guilty before a holy God who is altogether righteous, who's altogether just, and he is going to punish sin or else he's not just, is he? If he lets Adolf Hitler off the hook and there's no punishment, can we really call him holy? Can we really call him good? I don't think so. So listen, it delivers you also from the punishment that was owed to your sin. Jesus took that on the cross for you. And when he's raised from the dead into new life, you have victory over the punishment for sin. Thirdly, you're delivered from the power of sin. Let me read this to you. 1 Peter 2, 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. Listen, as a Christian, it's not just that we have been judicially judged to be righteous before God. It's not just that we don't have any more condemnation, as Romans 8 1 says. It's more than that. It's that we have the power through the Holy Spirit to walk in works of righteousness prepared for us. Isn't that wonderful? As a Christian, you're delivered from the power of sin over your life. Isn't that incredible? We begin to walk by the Spirit and not any longer by the flesh. We begin to trample upon the sins that used to have victory over us. We begin to arise out of the mire of addiction. This is the gospel, brothers and sisters. Furthermore, the resurrection is victory over death. It's victory over death. As sin meets its end in the resurrection, so too does death. 1 Corinthians 15 20 and 22 says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in also in Christ all shall be made alive. And then verses 51 to 57 of the same chapter, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. But we shall all be changed. Listen to this. This is you if you believe in Christ. You shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. 
For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, when the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Praise God. The cross, the resurrection puts a stopper in death. Finally, it is this. It's victory over the powers of darkness. The resurrection is a complete victory over Satan over all of the demonic realm. When we become a Christian, we are radically changed. I don't know if you realize this, but being a Christian, it's not just about accepting a new set of beliefs. It's not just about that. You do that, but that's not all it is. Being a Christian isn't just about changing the way that we think. It's not just about accepting a set of facts. Becoming a Christian is actually about dying. It's kind of morbid. Being a Christian is about death. It's death to the old you. And being a Christian is also about life. It's a new, radical, supernatural life that God puts inside of you. That's what it means to be born again. So being a Christian is about dying to yourself. It's about dying to the world. Does the world still have a hold on you? Does the world still speak to you? Still grab a hold of your flesh? Probably. It does for me. But listen, I have a prevailing victory over the world. I can have victory because of Christ, not because of me, but because of His grace and the power of His Spirit working in me. I can die a death to the temptations of the world. I can die a death to the power of my flesh. I can die a death to the temptations of the devil and his fiery darts. You have a new life within you as a Christian. A life which isn't any longer captive to sin. It's not a life that's any longer captive to yourself. Because that's what we're born into this world, believing that we are God. That we serve us. As a Christian, we die to the flesh. We live now as Christians a life that's no longer obedient to the powers of darkness, but is instead obedient to God. Romans 8, 10 and 11 says, But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And Colossians 2, 12 to 15 says this, Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Say, all my trespasses. All your trespasses, not just some, by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. He put them to open shame by triumphing over them at the cross. 
finally, to finish with, the cross and the resurrection in particular, it is the reason we have for hope. The resurrection tells us that there's life after death. For those of us who trust in Christ, dying isn't the end. Dying isn't the end for those of us who trust in Jesus. And God is showing us through the resurrection that though we as his people, we do experience trials, we do experience pain, we do experience suffering in this life, it tells us the resurrection that he is in charge. He really is in charge. That he really does reign over the future. And that Christ is our elder brother who's gone ahead to prepare a place for us. The resurrection shows you this. It shows that God's word is true. It shows you that you can trust him. And it shows you this, that when Jesus says he's coming back, that you better believe he's coming back. You better believe he's coming back. And it isn't going to be too long off in the future. I tell you that, sometimes when I go through trials, I look at the resurrection and my heart in those moments when I'm suffering and I'm in pain, it wants to tell me the future's bleak. <laughs> but the resurrection tells me different. It tells me that my father's in control. And even in my suffering, there's reason. Even in my suffering, there's never chaos. He's working all things together for good. Amen. Let's finish with reading Revelation 21 verses 1 to 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Our God, sovereign, Lord, protector, lover of our souls, we thank you that in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you have vindicated him and shown him publicly to be our saviour. You have shown us also, Lord, that there is victory over sin for all who trust in him. And our prayer would be today that if you are hearing this gospel and you feel in your heart a conviction that you have sinned before a holy God and you want to know his love and be at peace with him today, all you need do is believe upon the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins and turn to him and believe. Simple as that. And our prayer, Lord, today would be that you would show us the power of our deliverance from sin, from death, and the freedom that you've purchased for us into new life. We pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.